And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is God's word. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Well, these are, uh, these are biblical texts that used to be like laughed at and scoffed at, right? There were, uh, there were once modern people who would hear something like this and just say, give me a break. Um, this, is, uh, this is crazy talk. This is like weird and uh, I don't accept it. And you may have heard of uh, at around the time of our nation's founding, the, there was something called the Jefferson Bible. It was a bit of a secret Bible that Thomas Jefferson created himself and it was actually called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And this was a, this was a way of, of expressing uh, for Jefferson that he liked certain parts of the scriptures, found them authoritative in his life, but there were others that he just, he just couldn't accept. Um, biblical accounts that he found reasonable and relevant. And then there were ones that he said, these are too fantastic and I, I just can't, I can't have it. And so he felt embarrassed uh, to tell people that he had done this. Uh, but he had his own book that he called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And actually, Mark 1, 21 and 22 that we just read or heard from Vi was in his, uh, in his book. But he cut uh, Mark 1, 23 to 28. He said, I don't, I don't think this thing happened. Um, this, is, this is impossible. This doesn't make sense. So Thomas Jefferson, a founding father, president, author of the Declaration of Independence, right, was intrigued by Jesus and his teaching. Here's a man with powerful teaching in the synagogue. He said, that, that sounds right to me. That's intriguing to me. But he couldn't accept that this authority had spiritual power. Um, he could accept him as a doctrinal leader in a synagogue, but not as a spiritual power who could cast out demons. So you tend to hear things like America is becoming less religious, our country has changed, it's not what it used to be. And this is true, things have changed. But think about it, today, what are you most likely to see cast in a positive light? Think about this, Jefferson accepts uh, 21 and 22, an authoritative male is teaching in a religious institution. Hmm. Or today, would it be more likely to hear someone accept Someone with deep spiritual insight can speak to spirits. Actually, today, I think our answer, the new Jefferson, the Jefferson Bible of our day would cut verses 21 and 22 and keep 23 through 28, right? Um, you know, churches and religious institutions are declining. Spiritualism is booming. There's so many new metaphysical stores. I'm always, I'm seeing them everywhere I go. Uh, right, and then uh, we own a, a store down by the where the gym show happens. If you're around the gym show, right, you know it's spiritual, spiritually charged. 
Let's put it another way. What questions are people asking in our culture today? Um, millennials, younger, at the core of our culture. What, what questions are people asking? I have, I have an anecdote. So we had an employee at our store who knew I was a pastor, and I engaged one total conversation with them about spiritual things the whole entire time they were at our store. Um, she didn't ask for life advice. She didn't ask about anything in theology. She didn't ask for any proofs for Christianity. What she asked about one day, I'm, I'm in the store, I'm on my laptop, just kind of checking some stuff, and she got, said, I have a question for you. You're a pastor, right? And I said, yeah. And she said, do you think demons can possess people? And I said, oh. And I, as I often do, and I'm not sure how to respond, I said, can you give me a little background to this question? And she reported that she'd seen someone attempting an exorcism. I think it was in a Catholic church. And, her, and so her question was, do you think that's real? Is that, is that something that actually happens? So I, I think that the most likely um, these types of religious stories are the ones that are, that are captivating our friends and neighbors. Uh, usually stories that include powers, evil incarnate, um, humanities fight against it. Think about it, just even in popular culture, um, especially the idea of exorcism. I googled how many movies about exorcism have been made in the last 10 years, and it's a long list. It's a really long list. Um, an exorcism, that's, a, that's coming, it's a Latin word from a Greek word, to bind by an oath. And I, I don't know if that's what we mean by it, but it's this idea of a person being able to engage with spiritual authority and actually, you know, exercise that spiritual authority effectively, right? So things have indeed changed, but I wouldn't say we're less religious. So then the question is, why is this shift happening? There's probably a number of reasons. Um, first, I think we have to acknowledge that, uh, so Thomas Jefferson is a rationalist, right? And so he's, he's looking at the world and he's saying, science and reason is going to answer our questions. Um, it's going to lead us into an into a ideal future, right? And so we, we are descending from a culture that are, that are you know, shaped by this, this type of thinking, this type of view, but it's been a while. It's been a while. Now, other cultures definitely are on different timetables, right? If you go, so Sam and Alex are going to you know, fly into the Amazon. If you're in the Amazon, your culture's been on a different timetable. Honestly, even if you, blew, if you grew up in the Blue Ridge Mountains, right, of the United States, uh, your culture might be on a different timetable. Time but I think the tide is moving in a different direction. Um, today, we look at the optimism, the rational optimism of somebody like Jefferson, who thinks if we employ a reasonable game plan and embed that game plan in our institutions, we can expect a better tomorrow. Meaning, like, if we kind of, if we kind of do reasonable things, if we follow methods, um, if we have good laws, if we, if we follow good scientific methods, we embed that in our, in our institutions, things will get better. And our reason will get us there. Our, our advances in government, science, philosophy, medicine, we can solve the world's problems. Um, and people believed that, um, and they believed that they could understand and build things that were dependable. But what do we see when we read our history books? I think when we even, for me, I look back at the 40 years of my life. I think some of you could look back at the 20 years of your life and ask things like, um, has our knowledge created systems that were incorruptible? I mean, think about like the pandemic. Did science solve our human problem? doesn't feel like it did, right? Um, 
it seems like our foundations are kind of cracking. Our technology has created the nuclear threat. Our information is killing us. We're cascading into increased anxiety as we learn more information, even spiritual information. We are actually becoming less sane people the more information we have. It's not working. The foundation's cracking. And there actually seems to be a darkness seeping through those cracks. There are benefits of our technological age. Evils that were hidden can now be seen, right? Things that were hidden can be placed in the limelight through digital technology. Um, think about, you know, though, that that's not always the case. It's also easier to commit evil acts. Like how many, how many people, you know, how many times have you been, you know, you got a scam call on your phone and you don't know who it is. You don't know who's behind it. They're masquerading behind somebody else's phone number or name or face. And there's, there's an evil that's trying to, you know, enact itself in the world and, and technology is enabling it and you don't know who's behind it. So what's, what this signals is that we are, we are seeing the collapse of the idea that rational, technological, advanced knowledge can save us. And so because of that, there's a new openness to the other side of the equation, to the spiritual, the spirits. People are seeing spiritual effects, spiritual things going on and saying, rationalism's not fixing it. Maybe there's something to the spiritual stuff. So who is right? Which side of that is right, right? Jefferson's rejecting the spiritualism of generations before him that he probably thought were kind of foolish, right? I have a little bit of that in my own story. I see some of that in my past, and I think it's a little foolish. But then our culture is looking at the rationalism of Jefferson and people th who think that they can get the information right and it's going to fix our problems, and they're skeptical of that too, and they're right. And they're opening back up to spiritual things. There's kind of this... Uh, this pendulum effect, right? Where it shifts back and forth. Where we look, we're rational. We're, we're going to be spiritual. Rational, we're spiritual. I picked a very specific clock here, right? Pop culture reference. Who knows, who knows what that's from? Stranger Things, yeah. What is, what's, what's behind a show like Stranger Things? There's, there's two worlds, right? There's the upside down. There's the world that you, that you experience, and they overlap, and it's trying to get this, I, I work out this idea of what's, what's the connection? What comes from what here? So the Bible treats people um, not as either spiritual or rational. Um, the Bible treats people as what you could call psychosomatic holes. That came from one of my commentaries. Wasn't that smart sounding? Psychosomatic holes. Um, you, you can read those too and come up with those phrases. Um, but what's that mean? It means that we as people in our world are both supernatural um, and spiritual, um, but we also are reasonable and rational. Like, it's, it's both. Um, the ancient literature of the Bible, uh, back then, these are more animistic societies that, that really um, viewed this idea that the spiritual condition flows um, into our physical experience. So that would mean like you, so in our, in our scripture, Mark 1, that, that culture would have thought, here's a man acting strange, um, and he's running into the temple interrupting Jesus, and they would think his spiritual condition is working itself out physically in his erratic behavior. That's how they would, they would think about it, right? In our day and culture, um, we are shifting back in that direction, but we're moving from a rationalistic 
a way of thinking that, that often would say something like, your mind and body's condition actually affects your spiritual health. So like, perhaps you were, you were, you know, you're looking at your family history or something like that, or your workout regime or your diet and all this stuff. And like, that's going to affect your, your spiritual health. Like it moves that direction. So the, the, these older animistic cultures would say your spiritual life is manifesting itself physically. And I think our culture says your physical life affects your spirit. And I, um, I'm trying to say that I think the scripture doesn't parse it out that way. It, it's not unidirectional in either way. Um, Garrett, I know you've been wondering what my plumbing uh, illustration was about, right, in the slides. And so this is, um, yeah, I don't even care about this illustration. But what, what, am I, what I'm trying to say is it's like plumbing. Like, how does your, so you have a sink on one side of the house, a sink on the other side of the house, and you turn one on, it's not that the water's flowing that direction, and that's why it comes out. It's because the whole line is pressurized, right? So it could come out one direction or it can come out the other direction. It's the same water, it flows whichever way you open it. You know, whenever there's an opening, it flows in that path of least resistance. That's sort of what people are like. There are the, these, these reasonings and these spiritual things, but they're all, they're all connected. And it can flow either direction. Uh, the, the things that you do in your life can affect your spiritual health. And then your spiritual uh, experiences and the things you're exposed to can affect your life. It can move in both directions. Now, this is where I say, that sounds very theoretical, right? Like, it sounds very, very theoretical. It's like Andy's pretending he's a college professor, right? And he's giving us a talk. I get it. I know. I'm right there, too. And, that's, and that's, uh, that's fine until that's not how it feels, until it's your life, right? Um, Cruz is actually going to talk about his life for a second and, and share a story that he had, and then we're going to dig a little bit more into this passage. Um, but as we're going through this series and hearing about people's actual encounters with God, uh, this is one I asked Cruz to do because he's told me about it a couple times. So come on up, Cruz. Yeah, I was asked to uh, to come share my really weird, crazy story of how I ended up coming to faith. Um, I uh, I grew up in a non-Christian household uh, until I was probably like, I don't know, my entire life still. Um, and when I was 19, I ended up meeting this girl who, uh, she was my first introduction into any sort of experiential spirituality. And uh, she... Uh, she was, as we would probably call her now, like a practicing new ageist. She was just kind of into spells and, and whatever, whatever else that stuff looks like. Um, but as we would kind of, as we kind of got closer and, and, and grew closer in the relationship, um, I, I started to kind of just really, we both started to experience really weird things. Uh, she would continue to practice her spells and stuff. And then at night we would go to sleep and, and uh, we would enter into like a sleep paralysis. And for those that don't know what that is, it's just when you fall asleep and you can't move, you can't talk, and you just, it's, it's a really weird state that's just actually really, really terrifying. Um, and it wasn't just one night. It was, it was every night probably for, at the time, probably for about three months. Um, and uh, and we, we would try everything to try to figure that stuff out. Like, we didn't, we didn't really know what any of that meant. So uh, she she would do like cast a protection spell 
and and that would hopefully try to protect us from whatever we would deal with uh, when we enter into that space. And we even reached out to some some shaman to try to come bless us and had a shaman come bless us and that didn't work either. Uh, so fast forward three months down the line, we're in sleep paralysis every night. We're going through our days. Uh, I think we're exp I'm experiencing stuff where I'm driving around the city and seeing shadows follow me. Every time I'm in sleep paralysis, I'm seeing shadows run across my wall. Um, having no idea as, an, as a 19-year-old from no religious background what any of this kind of means, um, I, I was just trying everything at this point. I, I kind of just had this weird thought to reach out to my buddy. I had this childhood friend who, uh, he was the only known Christian in my life, and he was a, a Christian that uh, we, would, we would hang out with, and we would get in a circle, and we'd get around him. And he was the kind of Christian where he wouldn't say a swear word, so we would try to get around him and try to get him, coerce him into saying a swear word, and he wouldn't do it. And uh, for, for whatever reason, that stuck with me. And so I, I reached out to him, and I was like, hey, would you mind if I uh, just come and check out your church? He said, yeah, yeah, come along, come, come check out my church with me. So uh, I went over and I checked it out and uh, something was compelling about it. And I kind of just stayed around and hung out for a little bit until I felt one day, I think I, I told him what I was going through and why I was really there. He probably just asked me why, why I wanted to come. And, uh, and then let me just paint this image. Uh, he, he introduces me to the pastor on the way out. So this pastor gets done preaching his sermon He's shaking hands on the on the door uh, at the door on the way out, and uh, I, I'm walking out. I shake his hand. I introduce him to my. I introduce myself, and he uh, he he asked me what I was going through, and because I told him I needed to talk to him about something, shared my whole story, and he really like. I don't. I don't looking back on it now, this kid, this non-Christian kid, comes up to you and says, "Hey, I'm dealing with all these really crazy spiritual things. Like, what advice can you give me?" He probably had no idea what to say, but uh, for, what, for whatever reason, just probably led by the Spirit, he says, you know, next time it happens, just try to call the name of Christ. And, uh, and I was like, I don't know what that means, but I'll, I'll go try. And so I went home, routine happened, laid down, uh, closed my eyes, forced to sleep, woke up in sleep paralysis, couldn't move, seeing these weird things just kind of mess with me. Um, and I, I think, I don't know the exact words I said, but I'm sure I just said some words along like, Jesus, help me. And, uh, and it worked in a weird way. It was the only thing that ended up working. It, uh, I was able to, it was the first, I'd seen like this spirit demon thing. I'd seen it quiver and, uh, it quivered. And then I was able to eventually break out of sleep paralysis. And that was for what I woke up and was able to go back to sleep and not have to deal with that again, but just kind of discovered that this calling on the name of Jesus ended up working. And wh why did this work when nothing else did? So uh, I, I, that's kind of where the story ends, but also like really begins. I, I navigated that for six months, even past that, where I'd still get forced to sleep paralysis every night and have to call on the name of Jesus and fight my way out of it. Um, and then eventually became Christian, got baptized, had to figure out church and all that stuff. But that was my spiritual experience of actually how I became a Christian, um, not growing up in a, a Christian household or even knowing what any of that meant or having, having read a lick of the Bible. But yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Cruz. Now, you need to know, Cruz is kind of nervous to share this because um, it's not just this cool spiritual story to him. It's, you know, something that... It, 
It was like part of his life, and it was a scary time in his life. And Jared Cruz and I were having some good discussion on our home from class, on our way home from class one time, where we were saying that these stories can be hard to tell because you can kind of second guess yourself and wonder if others will believe you or if you're even sure that's what was happening at the time or something like that. It can be a little nerve wracking to share that stuff. So I really do appreciate you, Cruz, um, doing that. Uh, it's important to consider how much we, um, you know, acknowledge these events and and how do we kind of depend on them, right? Um, in, in a way, it could seem like the man's experience in the scripture um, was is like the centerpiece of the story because it's the most dramatic moment in the story, right? And it could seem like, you know, that event for Cruz is the most, you know, is the centerpiece of his story because it's the most dramatic moment in the story. But but it's not, it's actually just this, this short period. He's talking about six months and, and something like that, right? And so what is, what is Mark in this scripture actually emphasizing? I think that's really important. And what do we do? How do we frame these stories and these experiences? I'm convinced that deliverance um, from spiritual darkness doesn't stay dramatic, not necessarily. Like there's a, there's a certain spiritual like adrenaline junkie thing that can happen where you have like a really like deep and meaningful experience and you want to have more of those to like prove the faith. And in a way you think if it's truly a deliverance, you, you would hopefully not experience it ever again. Um, hopefully that would be something that you, you left behind by God's grace, right? So where do we go from here? What does Mark teach us? What do we do with a God who casts out demons and a Jesus who has authority? Those are important uh, questions to ask. What is Mark trying to get us to think about? I'm going to kind of walk through the scripture a little bit. Keeping in mind the spiritual uh, layer of our lives is more accepted um, in our culture at this time. Um, so keeping that in mind, let's pay attention to the story. Again, I'm going to read slowly through what Vi read to us earlier. They, Jesus and his disciples, went to Capernaum. This is kind of a home base uh, for Jesus and his disciples early on. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So this uh, opening line must matter, right? I've talked about how Mark is telling us these punchy stories that are, are kind of biographical in a way, where they invite you to say, what do I learn from this? How do I, how do I apply this? So the opening line of the story is not just telling a history. He's trying to give you something to learn from. Jesus entered into the synagogue and was teaching. Jesus is taking on the role of a rabbi or a teacher in the synagogue, which is where Jewish people gathered when a temple wasn't nearby to learn the scriptures. And Jesus is, is teaching. It says, they were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes who were their, their typical uh, interpreters of the scriptures. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. This is a surprise moment for them. Um, this isn't just, uh, I, I tend to think like, I think when I read this, it's, it's almost like I expect that, you know, up front up here, there's like a homeless dude sleeping and he's just like, surprise, you know, and he's like mad. Um, no, this is their synagogue. Like literally, like if he was viewed as having an unclean spirit, he's not allowed inside. And it, this is, you're, you're supposed to imagine like someone bursts in the door and is like an uninvited guest who happens to know that Jesus is teaching. 
and is confronting Jesus in front of everybody. This is a very unexpected event. This is not normal at all, right? He's actively challenging Jesus in the middle of the teaching space. It'd be like that happening to me right now. It'd be unexpected. And then we read about the, you know, what you could call the exorcism, right? He cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, being, uh, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Uh, be silent here sounds kind of tame in English, like quiet down, please. It's not. It's a word for muzzling an animal forcefully. And it was a colloquialism for like, shut up. It was a very strong, really, that's, again, the commentary said that. The, it's, it's a strong word. It's a command. It's a harsh command. And the word here for, for come out is not like the word exorcism, like create a spell or an oath. It's not that actually at all. It's the, the command that someone in, in Greek, if they were running the theater and they were telling the next character to come on the stage, commanding them, come out from behind the curtain and come onto the stage, it's that word. Get out there now. Like it's, it's from one who runs the show saying, you come out. Shut up, get out there. It's pretty intense. And then what response um, does Mark tell, tell us about? Well, so what do the people conclude after seeing this pretty dramatic event, right? This person runs into the teaching space, confronts Jesus. Jesus says, shut up, get out there. And he obeys him. It says, they were all amazed. And they question among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. The people see this event and they return to contemplating what he was teaching. Isn't that interesting that at the beginning, he's, he goes to the synagogue, he's teaching. They're impressed by his teaching. He's teaching better than the scribes. Then the man comes in and confronts him. He speaks directly to him, commands him, and they go, wow, this teaching is even more authoritative than we thought. The, the theme for Mark is the teaching. The event is illustrating something of the power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. And then it concludes that once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee, teaching is the strong theme. So what's the question the story would leave you with? If you're reading this story and trying to think, what does it mean for me the way you'd read an ancient biography? You would, this is the question you'd be left with. What was he teaching? What, what was he teaching? It didn't, it didn't say it didn't say what he was teaching. What was he teaching? And Mark makes you wait. He's writing with a purpose. He's actually trying to get you. You've, you've heard some stuff about Jesus. You've heard about John the Baptist. You've heard about how profound he is. Then he tells you his teaching is so authoritative that a demon tries to confront him in the synagogue. He, he tells the demon what to do. The demon has to obey. And all the people say, what is with this teaching? And you're sitting there going, what is the teaching? What's the teaching? And Mark's going to work that out for you in the rest of the book, so I'm not going to tell you either. But you're supposed to be really, really intrigued about what Jesus has to say after reading this. That's the point. 
That's kind of what happened to Cruz. Cruz became really intrigued about this, what Jesus had to say. All right. In fact, Jesus' spiritual authority in the exorcism seems to be tied to drawing out that question. So at the center of the story is Jesus and the authority of his teaching, and it's exhibited by his spiritual authority over the unclean spirit. I'm not saying like Thomas Jefferson that that didn't happen. I think it, it did happen. But I'm also not going to say like people of our day that the teaching doesn't matter. It does. So what does it have to say to, to Jefferson and the rationalists or to the young mystics flocking to the Tucson Gem and Mineral Show or the shoppers at the occult store or a young person like Cruz who was trying to figure it out? It means that moving in either direction is a denial of reality. We're supposed to see the relationship between the two. Spirit, the spiritual authority of Jesus is showing us we need to listen to his teaching. And the teaching of Jesus is teaching us he has spiritual authority. Both are true. But the spiritual realm isn't this little like playground. There's authority there. There's good there. There's evil there. There's kingdoms in conflict there. It, it matters. I think in our day, we're prone to either consider the spiritual realm a playground um, or we don't even realize the impact of our spiritual influences. Cruz is talking about, he kind of got into that. He didn't realize the impact of the spiritual stuff that was going on in his, in his story. Um, and, but it's no joke. As Cruz's story exhibits, it, it started to impact him. Look, you don't want to mess around with spiritual allegiances, um, whether you're looking for it or not. That's something I feel like I need to say. Does that sound hokey? You know, I get it. Like, you know, it, it could sound like, oh, spiritual allegiances. But, but think about this. What if you really started obeying the dark thoughts in your head? What if you, what if you listened to them, right? Um, there's nothing hokey on the other side of that. I, I don't know what was going on with the, the teenagers who shot up the Kansas City Parade, but I can guarantee you that, one, that they, they had thoughts in their head that they acted on at some point. Once the anger ratcheted up, there was a conflict and the guns came out. Somewhere in there, due to maybe some of the physical choices they'd made, some of the spiritual things they'd experienced, or just the, the anger of the moment, but, but somewhere in there, there's, there's a, you, you, you think, you hear something, and you act. It's not hokey. Like, things happen. Terrible things happen when you listen to the voices in your head. Our, uh, in the, the rationalist, right, goes, oh, mental illness again, right? Or, ah, legislation could have fixed this. You know, if we had better, better, the better health care or the better laws, we could fix this. Um, yeah, that, that's worth doing. Absolutely. All that. But we also have to account for the spiritual realities behind all of this. Um, I met a, a mentally ill man who a, a pastor friend of mine is his cousin. And I went down to, went down to the, the hospital. Um, he was off his meds and, and I sat down with him and I said, so what do you, you know, tell me about yourself. What are you going through? He looked me in the eye and he said, Pastor, here's, here's my deal. It was the most clear statement I've ever heard from somebody, maybe in my life. He said, I know what Jesus says to do. Satan tells me to do something else. The reward Satan gives me is what I want, so I listen to him. He just, and you go, okay, maybe, He's right. 
maybe that's actually going on in the background for all of us. Maybe you don't want to mess around with things that have spiritual consequences, right? Like we don't want to get sick, right? You know, somebody's hacking up a lung and I'm not like, hey, you know, this is the day I want to give you a hug. We don't want toxic people in our lives, right? Like people that stress you out, you don't want those people in your life, right? So why would you toy around with evil and spiritual things when your, your psyche, your inner, your mind, your heart are at risk? And it might even break out in a moment of weakness or anger into a physical act, right? Some in our culture aren't, aren't playing around, I think, but want to keep our options open. It's hard to land on a belief system. So, so I think a lot of our friends and neighbors are like, I, I believe in spiritual things. I don't know which one to choose. So I'm just going to try them all. You kind of become a dabbler, a collector. Um, and in our planning meeting, John, who's far more cultured than me, as many of you probably know, told me about a scene from The Mummy. And we were going to show it, um, but our technology has failed us today. So I just have to show you clips. Um, but the, uh, it so accurately captures, I think, the spirit of our time. And that's why I wanted to show it to you, to, to make this memorable. Um, so I just have, I have pictures. So anyway, the, uh, the character at this time is being confronted by the mummy and he's scared. And he has all of these different charms around his neck. And he's holding them up and trying to speak the language, Right. The, the different language that's going to that's gonna ward off the mummy. So here's, here's the moment. Here he is with his Jewish star, but he's tried several others, and he's been holding them up, speaking the language. The mummy's still coming after him, and uh, the Jewish star ends up making a difference, right? And the video clip would have illustrated that so well. Um, but he, yeah, he, he's holding it up, and he's, uh, and he's saying, like, he's trying this, and he's trying this, and he's trying this, and he's trying this. He's just hoping one of them's going to work. And I think that so illustrates where many of us, uh, our friends and neighbors, maybe even yourself are at. You're, you're out there, you're, you're like, I think there are spiritual realities and you're just trying stuff. Just trying stuff. Trying the charms, right? Trying the symbols. I think we do this as individuals and communities. Um, think about this, even employing the language of like, like maybe this evil in our society will be will be uh, warded off by the convictions that we have? Or what about it's the, our desire to love one another and social change, our desire for peace, our desire for hope? I'm throwing all this stuff at this evil in our world. Will anything work? We just got to try it. But we want to know, do any of these actually have power? Do they have power? Will they do anything when we hold them up, Right? This isn't an entirely new phenomena. Um, Acts 19 records this encounter. I'm reading from the New King James because I liked one of the words it used. Um, it, it's just a helpful way of saying it. Um, but listen to this, Acts 19. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. That's the word I liked. I thought, why? You know, that's unusual miracles. Um, so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, 
but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. You know what that means? The dude beat them up and stripped them, right? That's what he did. Um, this became known to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and, they f and fear fell on them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Isn't that interesting? Um, not so different from our times. People who don't walk with Jesus might see that there are spiritual experiences out there and say, hey, I want to use Jesus as a symbol, right? And, and it might not work. It depends on what you're trying to do with it. It's interesting. Cruz was looking for help, right? These people were looking for the power for themselves. Jesus is not a symbol. He's not just a teacher, he is the one who has authority. You can't just use him. He doesn't just you know, exercise on command. You have to know him. It has to be his power at work, not you trying to gain power for yourself. This scripture is highlighting the teaching of Jesus, Mark 1, to a culture that assumed the spiritual realm. I actually think we in a culture like Tucson need to remember your spiritual experiences prove you need the teaching of Jesus, the authoritative teaching of Jesus that tells you what God's kingdom is like, who Jesus is, What's of utmost importance? What he's doing? How do you love God? How do you love your neighbor? Um, how do you, you know, connect with him as your authority figure, as one who is actually the Lord of your life and not just a religious symbol? How do you do that personally? How do you do that in a family? How do you do that in a church? And to those of us who grew up in the more, you know, rational religious settings or periods of time, who have a hard time with stuff like this and worry like, ah, we're getting into weird territory, um, which is like me. We need to remember the teaching of Jesus always points to the spiritual authority of Jesus, and he can and will exercise that. They're not separate realities. The mind, the body, and the spirit are a unity, and we need to know our maker, the source of this unity, in order to be made clean and walk in freedom under Jesus in a spiritually haunted world. And I don't mean haunted like Halloween. I mean haunted as in there are depths of realities and what's going on. Uh, Michaela and I watched Willy Wonka, the new Wonka movie, and, um, and they're grappling with some of this. So the, they've got priests, crooked priests, and their, their motives are their chocolate addiction, right? And, uh, and clearly they've got some political ideas in mind as they, as they paint this picture. But it's like, there's, there's, there, there are spiritual things, and then there are the real allegiances. There's is chocolate, right? People doing spiritual things who have a real allegiance. So how do you discern the spirits? How do you walk under Jesus' authority in the midst of a spiritually contested and sometimes scary world? Um, my pastor friend, Eric, has developed a little illustration that I think is really helpful that I want to share with you. Um, I don't think this is the way to do it, but it's, it's been helpful to me. He calls it the table of decision. Um, and what I like about it is that it leaves space for the, you know, the experiential, the rational, and affirms the unity of the mind, body, and spirit. So um, you, you should also consider in this illustration that like, the teaching of Jesus, the, the scriptures, the, authority, the words that Jesus has said are on the table, and they're available to all those who are present at the table. All are speaking. So uh, just to explain this a little bit, here's the table. Like, so this is you have an event in your life that presents 
to you, you know, and, you, and you're going to have to respond to that. So you're at the table. Jesus is at the table. The enemy of your soul is at the table. And then there's other people. There's God's people are with you uh, at the table. So taking like Cruz ex- Cruz's experience uh, as an example here. So Cruz is dealing with some, some scary stuff, right? He's, he's got, he's, he's scared. He's not sleeping. He's got issues. He's like dealing with this spiritual problem. And he's probably, you know, getting, I would say the enemy, enemy in his story is like intimidating. Like he's intimidated by some dark spiritual reality. And then uh, Jesus um, is introduced to him as someone who says, you know, or, and he's learning very, you know, just he's on the front edge of this, but Jesus, he learns, has some authority. But he learned that from one of God's people telling him, hey, try this. And then by God's people inviting him into their circle and saying, here's how you walk with Jesus, right? So the words of Jesus are, are sometimes, they can be confusing, they can be hard words, we need support. And so God's people have a role of like enforcing what Jesus is saying because the enemy is, is gonna lie. Now, um, there, there are a lot of other situations. So say, you know, the, the one that may not feel so spiritually charged, like, Let's, let's say I have an anger issue, right? And somebody is just driving me nuts. I'm at the table of decision. And so the enemy might say to me something, and maybe I don't hear this audible voice, but the enemy says, um, you know what? Get, rip into them, you know? Like take them aside, tell them what's what, blast them on social media. They'll never speak to you again. You've gotten, you know, then you have what you want. You have the freedom you, you desire. And by the way, you're in power. You take the power in this situation. And you, and you hear that thought and you go, that sounds, that sounds about right. I do feel pretty powerless because of them. I'd like to feel this way. Okay. And that, that sounds pretty good. It could work. That could work. Um, say you're a Christian and you, you start to like kind of dig into what you've been formed in in your faith. And your faith tells you something like love your enemies. Um, and you go, huh, that sounds like a mess. Like, so I'm going to, what, what's that going to look like? I don't even know what that looks like. Like, does that mean I do confront the problem? Maybe. But I can't just be mad and angry at them. I have, they have to know they're, they're loved somehow. And so I, maybe I do confront it, but not as harsh. And I don't let go blast everything about them to everybody. So I'm going to have to talk about it in such a way that may not really clean it up right now. And I still have to stay in relationship with them, which I don't want to do. Like, that doesn't sound easy. Enemy's plan sounds like a simple solution. And then you've got God's people who have a role to help you hear the voice of Jesus and say, hey, the enemy's plan is going to be easier now, but its long-term effects aren't good. If you become this type of person who does this, you're going to be isolated. This isn't, this isn't and you're not going to be out, you're going to be out from under the authority of Jesus. And you don't want to go there. I think sometimes thinking through something like this is, is really helpful. Um, I actually think 
we in the church need to have these types of discussions. I actually think in a way this could be in a culture like ours, a way to engage unbelievers who have spiritual questions would be to say like, hey, can I point you to, to something that has real spiritual authority? That's essentially what, what that pastor did with Cruz. And as Cruz said, he probably did feel like he was kind of going on a limb here and saying, try calling on the name of, of Jesus, right? Um, but I think if you said to somebody, hey, you seem to be very spiritually motivated, uh, you seem to have a lot of, of spiritual thoughts, um, some of those can lead into like really negative like spiritual places, and some of those can actually be effective. Would you like my help discerning that? Actually, I think you might have a lot of conversations with unbelievers that are productive about that sort of thing. And this illustrates, too, that the spiritual encounter can sometimes be, um, you know, as like uh, dramatic as what Cruz described to us. I mean, that, that does, like, he, come, he came to the table of, of trying to figure things out when he was, you know, seeing evil spirits, right? But it also means it, you can see it in the undramatic things, the things that don't feel so spiritual that really are, that have spiritual layers behind them, the, the decisions that you're making in your life the ways that you're going to interact with somebody, you can apply this and see the spiritual layer behind what feels bare and rational and see that they are actually one and the same. So there you go. There's a, there's a tool for you to try and use. Now I want to just land back in the, uh, in the personal work of Jesus at the table because for thousands of years, um, we really do remember the most dramatic deliverance uh, that's ever happened in which Jesus went toe-to-toe with the unclean spirits at work in the religious leaders, the political leaders, and even some of his own disciples. That's right, he's saying to Jesus, when, when Peter says, like, that's never gonna happen to you, what does he say? Get behind me, Satan. He sees Peter doesn't have the things of God in mind, sadly, right? And then we know Judas, who betrays him, is, is possessed by a spirit, right? That he's, he's been colluding with by listening to the people who were opposed to Jesus. So Jesus faces that. He goes toe-to-toe with that and remembered, um, and, and we remember his temptation, which we learned about just a couple weeks ago, where Satan had tempted him to do things the easy way for a, for a more dramatic uh, deliverance that didn't require suffering and Jesus had stood the test and decided to go through the, the version of it that was more painful, but more powerful. So Jesus went to battle at a table of decision, right? He's been at the table because he became one of us. He knows what it's like to, as a human, engage with the spiritual powers. He, he, he's not just a God who's looking down and going like, ah, I am in spiritual realms, but down there, you all, you know, I pity you, you fools. He, he's felt it. I think he's experienced things like what Cruz described. I think like he knows what it's like to get in a conflict like those, the people who, who, you know, are in that shooting in Kansas City. He knows what it's like to be riled up and pushed to the brink. He gets it, right? So Jesus goes to the table and faces the easy way of the kingdom, but chose redemptive suffering, the costly way, so that he could bear the sins of others. We see that in his teaching. We see that in the fact that after he was crucified on a cross, he rose from the dead victorious after waiting for a little while. Think of that as an exorcism. 
right? Where the spiritual powers could not hold him. So at the table of decision in the upper room, he leads us and says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of many. He's pointing you to an incredibly deep and experiential moment where he bore the impact of all Satan's forces and he overcame them. And he's saying, now, will you trust my authority? Will you listen to what I'm teaching you? And I hope you're hungry to know what he's teaching and go gobble up the rest of the book of Mark before bedtime, right? So I'm gonna pray. Uh, There's gonna be two minutes of silence for us and then we're gonna do our three weekly acts of worship the Christian church has always done. Um, We're going to, this this silent prayer is a time of confession. Um, And what we mean by that is you can confess Jesus as Lord, um, that, that you want to be, known by Jesus if you, uh, if you don't know him already, um, if you haven't experienced his authority in your life, that you could, you could ask him for that. Uh, you could confess sins. You could confess ways in which you have um, opened yourself to, to evil um, or engaged in it or given in to the darkness. You can confess that. And he is standing ready to have mercy on you and to forgive you. And what, what that means is that he would actually wipe out the power of evil and what it's done in your life. Um, And he's ready to give you freedom, just like that man experienced, right? Um, We give to one another because we believe in the power of what God is doing in our midst as a community. Like if our church is going to join people at the table of decision and help them discern this, we got to pitch in together and be all about that, right? We don't just give to check a box or, or you know, to earn God's favor. We, we give to fuel the work. Um, and, I, and I hope you do. And then as we take the Lord's Supper, we're affirming that Jesus is at the center of our story, um, that it's his work and power that make us clean. And then we are sent by the power of his spirit and what he's done for us to carry this news and this authority out uh, to the world. So let's pray uh, together, and I'll leave two minutes of silence for you. Would you join me? Father, we praise you for telling us this story uh, of Jesus. We praise you for the stories in our lives that remind us of the power that comes from Jesus. Um, We ask that you would help us discern our own hearts in in these times. Are um, Are we prone to doubt your supernatural power? Um, or are we prone to not listen to your teaching? Jesus, would you help us um, show us your kindness and your mercy so that we might actually get to know you in deeper ways, ways that challenge our assumptions? I pray that as we sit silent before you, that you would lead us in our prayers What do we need to ask from you? What do we need to sense from you? Would you deliver us from evil? So guide us now as we pray.